All right, welcome. I'm Pastor Lars Hammer here from Lord of Grace Lutheran Church in Moran, Arizona. I want to welcome you back to another one of my uh, little live stream classes, although this one is recorded because our internet is spotty. Uh, but welcome back to another one of these classes uh, where we look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writings that he made from the Tegel prison in Germany. They were compiled in a book titled Letters from Prison. And we're going to be looking at some of his reflections that he made when he was writing to his pastor friend Eberhard Betke. And one of the topics he was thinking about was he, he had this idea he was formulating called religionless Christianity. And he never finished it, but he started raising questions. Today, we're going to look not as much at specific church issues, like what would the church look like in a religionless world. Uh, we're going to look some more at just some different thoughts that he has regarding his uh, relationship with his fiance, which is kind of an interesting story. Uh, they met initially, her name's Maria, and they met when she was a confirmation student of his. But uh, don't worry, I, I know my confirmation kids always get freaked out by this too. Uh, they did not date while she was a confirmation student. Uh, they met there first, and then it was after she was 18, they met up again. I mean, she was still pretty young, but they met up again, they got engaged. Uh, if you want to read some of the world's boringest love letters ever written, read Bonhoeffer's love letters. The guy was so intellectual to the core, uh, but I would imagine he also would have been one of the most faithfulest people you ever would have imagined, uh, had, with a super high sense of ethics. So anyways, he, they got engaged, and it was not long after the engagement. I don't remember exactly how many months, but it was not long after they were engaged that he got caught in, in his plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. So that's when he went off to prison, and she stood by her man. Uh, she stayed engaged. She did not dump him. Uh, she went and visited him as much as she could, as much as they would allow him. And so for the first 18 months of his imprisonment, when he was in Tegel, which was a standard prison in Germany, he didn't initially die in one of the camps because he was from an upper-class German background, and he was a member of German army intelligence. Uh, that was how he went around spreading, uh, spreading information against the Nazis by working for them. Uh, and so he worked for army intelligence, and because of that, they sent him to a regular prison, although the last six months of his life he disappeared and nobody found out until afterwards that the SS had taken him and that's when he went off to a camp and died there and Maria didn't even find out until after the war was over. But nonetheless, he's writing to his pastor friend Eberhard Betge and talking about sort of his struggles being away and I thought this might be a nice little I don't say distraction, but just a different angle. Next week we'll get back into more hardcore theology, but just to look a little bit at some of what he said. So I'll shift over here and we'll put up the text for you so you can see. We're, if you're in the book, it's page 312, and we're just going to look at what's on this one page. I'm titling it On Desire and Loyalty because those are the two big topics that he talks about. And so, well, let's read this through, and I'll kind of share my, uh, my reflections and maybe some uh, commentary that helps. So here we go. It is, of course, conceivable that one may become completely selfless, and I know better than anyone else that that hasn't happened to me. Perhaps you will say that one oughtn't to suppress one's desires 
And I suspect you would be right. I expect you would be right. But look, this evening, for example, I couldn't dare to give really full reign to my imagination and picture myself and Maria at your house, sitting in the garden by the water and talking together into the night, etc., etc. That is simply self-torture and gives one physical pain. So I take refuge in thinking, in writing letters, in delighting in your good fortune, and curb my desires as a measure of self-protection. However paradoxical it may sound, it would be more selfless if I didn't need to be so afraid of my desires and could give them free reign, but that is very difficult. Just now, I happened to hear Solveig's song on the wireless in the sick bay. It quite got a hold of me. The wireless, that's, that's a radio uh, for you internet kids these days. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he was down in sick bay. Okay, okay, uh, uh, let's go back. We'll start at the beginning here uh, and look at some parts. Uh, the first line itself, we'll just start at the very first line. It is conceivable that one may become completely selfless. That line alone, while it sounds so innocent, is actually a very theologically loaded line uh, for Bonhoeffer's era. It, it implies that Heath believes that one could be selfless, that it is possible for a human being to be selfless, that it is within the realm of possibility. He doesn't say it's easy or that maybe anybody has achieved it, but it could be achieved. Now, you don't realize how big that is unless you come out of this tradition and it was big in Switzerland, in Germany. It was a big idea with the Swiss theologian Jean Calvin, who formulated it. I, I don't think he was the first one, but he really articulated this idea called total depravity. Doesn't that sound like a fun idea? I want to go to a church that teaches total depravity. But he was very concerned about people thinking that they could earn their salvation that they could do good works, and that was Luther's concern as well, that they could do good works and earn their salvation. And so in, instead of simply saying that, look, it's just not possible for us, somebody always has to take it the next level. And the next level was total depravity, that it isn't like we're mostly good but don't quite make it. It's that we're ultimately at our core rotten that everything we do is corrupted by sin. No matter how good we may think it may be, sin is in there somewhere. And what he's trying to do is sort of humble people and keep us from thinking, again, that we can earn our salvation in some way or that to think that we're good enough that we don't need God. You know, and you, you still hear that you know, today, of course, it's everywhere. I'm not that bad of a person, right? But you know, in the 1500s to say that you're good enough without God, oh, those are big words, but I think a lot of people still said that and still believed that. And um, so, but Bonhoeffer right there, I can read, he already does it, is indicating that he isn't really buying this de total depravity stuff that he would have for sure studied. He isn't buying that one is always selfish, that, that, but one could be, in theory, free from it. Uh, and you would think that the person who sacrifices his life and sits in prison would definitely be up there but, and so of selfishness, of selflessness. But he says, I couldn't quite, I, I couldn't quite do it. 
there's an old Friends episode. I, I've, I, I, this is like the only Friends episode I ever quote from uh, when preaching. But there's one where it's Joey and Phoebe, and they're arguing about can one have a selfless good deed? Uh, go look it up on whatever streaming service it's on now. And um, uh, it's, it's the only Friends episode that got remotely theological. Uh, and um, so, but they're having this debate. Is there such a thing as a selfless good deed? And Joey's trying to argue, yes, it is possible to do at least a deed that is selfless. And Phoebe's arguing, anytime you do something selfless, you're really rewarding yourself for it. You feel good about it. And so, because you, you get a good feeling out of being selfless, it's not really selfless. And so then finally, Joey goes down to Central Park and sees a bee and puts his hand out and lets the bee sting him and then comes back and says, see, with his swollen hand, I did a selfless good deed. I just let the bee sting me. I get nothing out of it. And she goes, well, you're bragging about how you did this selfless good deed and how selfless it makes you. That makes you feel good about yourself, so it's not selfless. And ah, right? But it did raise an interesting question. Can you truly be selfless, you know? Uh, or is even the person sacrificing themselves at some level doing it for some personal payback? E e even the feeling of martyrdom. Even if I make the ultimate sacrifice, am I still hoping for something beyond? Am I still, could one do this? I get the sense that Bonhoeffer, even though he has seen the evilest of the evil in Germany, he hasn't get, bought into that idea that there's no way we could do it. I think sometimes the idea of total depravity can function as almost like a, a get-out-of-jail-free card or a get-out-of-hard-work-free card, right? If I'm totally depraved and there's nothing I can do good and every act is sinful, then in a sense, there's no, it's like saying you're going to lose whether you try or don't try, you know? And if that's, what you're, if that's the answer, then I might as well just not try. And if the only answer to total depravity is that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is the only thing that could possibly rescue me, then whether I sin a little or sin a lot is still his sacrifice, right? So why even bother? And I, I, I don't think that's where Calvin was going when he was talking about this total depravity stuff. I don't think he was, but in reality, that's, kind of, that's how human nature thinks, right? Why try if I'm not going to make it anyways, right? This was me on the basketball team, right? I tried out for the basketball team sophomore year. I'd spent my whole summer before practicing and practicing and practicing because I had been told that hard work and practice can, you can work your way up the ladder. I then showed up at tryouts and discovered that the starting lineup was chosen like in fifth grade. Uh, and all the starters had friends who were like dads who were friends of the coaches. It didn't make any difference. And so I sat there going, why am I, why should I spend my time? Why spend my time? Yeah, there may be a one in a million chance that, you know, the five people in front of me will all get sick at the same time. Eh. I decided it wasn't worth it. And sometimes you can let the perfect be the enemy of the good, but I think here, uh, here Bonhoeffer is still articulating a different vision that we are not totally, totally depraved. Like I say, I just cannot preach that stuff. Total depravity. Um, you know, it, it, you would imagine what kind of a church it would be 
Uh, maybe that those are the Christians that Nietzsche ran into and said, I believe they were saved if they looked like it. You know, you're supposed to be happy that you're saved and you look all depressed and you get together to be reminded how horrible you are every week. Well, sign me up for that, you know. Um, so there's a reason why even those who believe in total depravity don't preach it anymore. So anyways, I don't think Bonhoeffer's in on that. All right, am I reading too much into his comment? Maybe, but just some thoughts. Okay, we'll keep going. Uh, perhaps you'll say that one oughtn't to suppress my desires, and I expect you would be right. Well, there's an interesting idea too. One should not suppress desires. That's so non-puritanical Protestant, right? You know, how, how much of, uh, and again, I'm, he, he's in Germany, so he's coming from a different culture, but you know, how much of sort of pietistic puritanical religion is based on the idea that desire is the gateway to sin? Right? And the key to being sinless is to avoid desires. And by desires, they're not talking about the desire to pay my employees less and skirt environmental regulations. It's, desire is always right. It's sex and drugs and rock and roll, right? Um, that's what they mean by desires. And so desire has become like this dirty word in puritanical Protestantism, even though, and it's kind of interesting, if you get into medieval mystics and the medieval church, before puritanical ideas were really out there, the mystics talked about holy desire all the time and having a holy desire for God. Some of the mystics would talk about their uh, how they desire God in ways that got a little bit graphic, and sometimes you'd wonder where the line was between you know, between desiring God and desiring something else. Uh, but they didn't feel like that was a sort of unholy mixture. Sex wasn't always necessarily dirty and taboo in, the, in their understanding of things. And so again, Bonhoeffer's, you know, saying, uh, one shouldn't suppress one's desires. What an interesting, what an interesting concept. Uh, I'd expect you're right. I'd expect you're right. So Bonhoeffer's not quite certain. And I wonder if him and Betka had this debate, you know, sitting around the fireplace with their pipes and their tweed jackets or whatever they did, um, you know, had this debate at some point in time and he's referencing that, you know. Uh, but again, he isn't saying that desire is evil. Desire's not the boogeyman. Um, but what does he desire? What is it that Bonhoeffer is desiring? What is the object of his desire? Well. Uh, he says, uh, right here, for example, I couldn't dare to really give full rein to my imagination to picture myself and Maria at your house sitting in the garden by the water and talking together into the night. That's what he desires. That's his desire. This guy is so not a player right? I mean, that's so darn wholesome. Most parents would like, they'd be like, that's all you're doing, you know, here, here's the keys. Um, but that's what he desires. That's what he desires. But it's a very, it's a very wholesome desire. Again, desire isn't bad, but he just wants to see Maria. He just wants to be with his fiance, right? And you know, that's so, it gives you such a sound of music picture, doesn't it? You know, sitting in the gazebo by the lake, you know, and, um, uh, but that's what he wants. And he wants to imagine that. 
His brain wants to imagine that. His, his, his heart, his soul wants to, imagine, wants to imagine that. He wants to imagine that. And that's the interesting point, isn't it? That the desire is to imagine himself with Maria. The diet, desire at its root, he will, yes, he would love to be with her. But the, what he's, the immediate temptation is to imagine himself being with her which is kind of interesting. So let's break this down a little bit. He desires to be with Maria, but he can't. So he imagines it, and the imagining causes him pain. Right? He says it's even like physical pain. It's self-torture. It causes him pain. Why? Because he knows it can't happen. So what's the desire that he's fighting? He's fighting the desire to imagine an unfilled desire. He's not fighting the desire to see her, but to imagine himself seeing her. The imagining is the temptation, the thing that he craves. But it hurts him to imagine it because he knows he can't fulfill it. But he can't resist imagining it. It's working at a couple levels here, right? And, 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 and that's why I, I wanted to look at this, because it really delves into this idea of, you know, what is it we desire? And he's touching on the idea of us desiring the thing that hurts, which is something where, you know, it, it, see, it sounds like it would make no sense. Why would we desire something that hurts? But, desire, you know, but this is his fiance, right? He loves her. Not having her hurts. Imagining himself with her makes him hurt more because he can't fulfill it. Right? It's, it's, and it's the fact that he can't be with her that that's what makes it so hard. Right? It isn't, and, and like I say, being with her isn't the temptation. He isn't like two blocks down the road where all he has to do is walk down, walk down the road and knock on the door and go, hey, let's take a walk by the lake. He can't do that. He's in prison. That's impossible. So what, what he has to suppress is the desire of picturing what he's not getting. Right? There's a lack in him, which is seeing Maria, and it doesn't get fulfilled by imagining. Or he doesn't see Maria. But when he imagines it, it only makes the lack so much more powerful. You know, you don't pine away for what you don't think about. You don't miss what's not on your mind. It's like when you clean your house and discover things, you know, like I'm retiling some rooms in my house, so we had to clean out the entire room. And I was hoping I'd find all the socks that, that got separated somewhere, and that did not happen. They still passed into the mysterious space-time vortex. But... You know when you clean out your, your room and you move everything out, you find things that you'd lost and you'd forgotten that you even had them. Oh, that's where that, you know, trading card went. But, and, what, and at one point in time, you had that trading card, you thought it was really valuable, but you stopped thinking about it. And when you stopped thinking about it, it you forgot it was there. So you weren't pining away for it. By forgetting about it, you stopped lacking it. 
It stopped being an empty hole. You just covered it up. It stopped being an emptiness in you. And so this is kind of what, this is what we're dealing with here, right? Is that you keep, if you keep imagining what you can't have, it doesn't fill you. The imagination isn't a substitute for the real thing. It just leaves you empty over and over. And that's what Bonhoeffer is confronting. He doesn't want to forget about Maria. And, and yet, to not forget, he has to imagine. But to imagine causes him pain. Let's keep going. So I take refuge in thinking, in writing the letters, and del delighting in your good fortune. So what does he do? He finds other things to do to preoccupy his mind. Right? He writes his letters. He thinks about his intellectual things. What is, what is religionless Christianity? And he delights in someone else's good fortune. Vicarious. I, I, I can picture some good things that actually are happening. Right? Put my mind on that. But then he says, and this is where it gets, this is where he, it gets um, really philosophical maybe. However paradoxical it may sound, it would be more selfless if I didn't need to be so afraid of my desires and give them free reign. It would be more, and he's right, it is paradoxical, it would be more selfless if he didn't need to be afraid. So, so what, what is he doing? How, how, how is giving in to desire selfless? It sounds selfish, right? That's what we always teach, right? You, you have a bag of chips, you have a plate of broccoli. You desire the, the, the chips, but you should have the broccoli. Giving in to your desire is the bad thing, usually. But he says here it works the other way. He's trying to protect his mental health, even his physical health, his emotional health, his heart, by not indulging the fantasy that he can't have. If he indulged it, it would hurt him. And that, he thinks, is more selfless to inflict pain on himself, thinking of the love that he can't access. The selflessness of not saving yourself from the pain of dwelling in what you lack. Most of us today would say that protecting your own health is important and hurting it with imagining what you can't, what can't happen is probably just fine. But what he's imagining is love. And he's feeling kind of guilty about wanting to not think about it. Not wanting to not think about Maria. Because that's cutting himself off from her and from the love he has for her. And he worries. What if I get used to it? What if it stops hurting? What if I move on? What if I stop loving her? And so... He's afraid of that the coping mechanism to get rid of the pain will erase the love. So taking care of himself becomes the self become taking care of himself 
by not indulging his desire is the selfish thing because his desire is to imagine what he can't have and that hurts. All right. Let's go on to the next slide. This time we're going to talk a little bit about loyalty. He says, uh, still on page 312 if you have the book, to wait loyally a whole lifetime, that is to triumph over the hostility of space, separation, and over time, i.e. the past. You, don't you think that such loyalty is the only way to happiness and that disloyalty leads to unhappiness? Well, I shall go to bed now, in case we have another disturbed night, goodbye. Wow, okay. But he did used to write about bombs, and he's getting towards, you know, he's about eight months away from the end of World War II. So the bombs are flying all over Germany, and there's air raids all the time, and they'll run down, and that's part of why he's in sick bay a lot, is because it's in the, uh, he, I, we think he probably got hurt too, but it was also at the bottom of the prison. So they heard all the prisoners down there and the bombs would fly. So when he says it could be a disturbed night, he's not, he's not being flippant with that. But he kind of cuts it off, right? Like he's got this thought and he doesn't finish it. But that's part of what makes this book so cool. All right. Loyalty is how you triumph over the hostility of space and time. Boy, doesn't that sound like a, a boy, I should, I should make a Facebook meme of that. Uh, see, how, see, see how that goes. Um, what in the world is he talking about? This is one of those phrases you could sit on. Again, he's thinking of his fiance, right? Who hasn't left, hasn't dumped him, even though there's little hope of seeing him again. I think they did hold out hope that somehow the evidence wouldn't be produced and he would get freed. Uh, you know, looking back, you realize what kind of a false hope that is, but, you know, you do wonder if sometimes false hope is what you need to get you through. But she, she, she did not dump him, right? She stayed loyal to him. And he thinks of how space and time pull us apart. And what can keep us together in separation is loyalty. It's not texting, it's loyalty, right? And, and, you know, things are always changing in the world. Basically, everything's always changing. Life is always changing. And all the things that happen in our lives have the potential to pull us apart from each other. There could be new opportunities. There could be new things that happen. There could be, could be tempted by somebody else. And all these things could push us apart. And yet, what does loyalty do? Loyalty keeps us together in the midst of that. So essentially what he's saying is that space and time, not in a quantum physics way, but just in a human way, in a human experience way, are not forces that work to keep us together. It's, it's a little bit kind of strong force and weak force, right? Strong force we wanna, you know, wants to blow us apart, the weak force somehow pulls us back together. And he's saying that space and time, you know, there's, life will always get in the way and try to break you up. 
So how do you, how do you combat that with loyalty? Loyalty is what combats that. Loyalty leads to happiness. Disloyalty leads to unhappiness, which is so contrary to our modern view, right? How, how, much, a modern, how, how much of the modern internet is full of little TikTok videos and stuff of, you know, I dumped him and I'm happier. I dumped her, I'm happier. I quit that, I'm happier. Where the point is always don't ever stay in anything 27 seconds past when you've reached peak personal individual satisfaction because that will make you unhappy and you know that and that's kind of the mantra that's out there right almost like loyalty is just a way to keep you chained to something that's depriving you of happiness and i would think that that attitude would be one of those things like space and time that wants to pull us apart you know opportunism in the world we live in means that we always live with a little fear in the back of our minds that this person we have that they might find someone better or in the back of our minds that we might find someone better and so love becomes very conditional and space and time are huge dangers because you, you, you always are, if you're always looking for something else, if there's always another option in your head, the clock is ticking. You only have so many years, better squeeze out all the happiness you can, better squeeze out all, all, all the personal satisfaction you can. And if you think that and you're always looking for that, what does that do? That creates a sense of disloyalty, right? You haven't necessarily cheated, but you're looking open for the possibility of it. And you might not even recognize that that's what you're doing. But when, we lose the but when we lose that loyalty, what happens? Well, when you have opportunism in the back of your mind and you think that it might end, the temptation is to become less vulnerable, less open. Why open myself up to this person? It's only gonna last a little while. Why share everything with this person? It might go bad. Right? So then what you do is you stay more guarded. But when you stay more guarded, you, when you stay more guarded, you're not as open and as vulnerable. When you're not as vulnerable, then you're not as open to experiencing love and happiness. So what ends up happening with guardedness is you never get a deep happiness. To get that deep happiness, you have to be with somebody you feel safe with and somebody you trust. And to trust them requires long-term, which requires loyalty. So in a sense, loyalty creates more happiness. Disloyalty leads to a lack of happiness. And, you know, again, I can't help but think of how just utterly different this is to the, our modern sense of how everything is fleeting and temporary, everything is conditional. I, wo I, I worry that so much conditional thinking makes for a lot of lonely people. And there's a lot of unhappiness that's being masked with casual relationships and mind-altering substances and this kind of thing. And we don't realize that we're doing it because we're trying to figure out how to get the happiness without the loyalty. We're trying to figure out how to, how to not overcome space and time but to give in to them game it try to game it 
But loyalty doesn't game space and time. It extends beyond it. It overcomes the forces that pull you apart. And so, in that case, I'm not going to go to bed now, but I'll leave you on that note. That, that, so that's what we got today. Next week, we'll get back into more stuff uh, about religionless Christianity, and we'll dig more into some of maybe as more, again, churchy issues. Uh, hope you enjoyed some talk about the lack and what you don't have, and I hope I didn't go around in circles too much. Feel free to leave comments, questions that you have. I'd love to hear from you, and um, I'll see you next week. God bless.